Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Probably quickly, which is great. Um, I, I did mention we are going to be on the last page of your handout from last week. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, uh, kind of looking back to verse 12. So that might be a good place to, to pick up on. And, uh, and, and we'll start studying through there. Uh, one of the things I've appreciated from you all is uh, whether you catch me in the hallway or before or after class, uh, hearing how this is uh, hitting you or how this is impacting you. I've had several of you over the last few weeks come up and say, boy, this is, this is how this you know, study of Jesus has shaped me or something that's made me go, wow, about Jesus. I, I love those moments, by the way. To where you see Jesus maybe in a new way, or maybe Jesus shapes you throughout the week. Um, this week, in a men's discipleship group that's studying the book of Luke, one of the things they're doing is they're studying the passage, pick up your cross and die daily. And every day they're asking that question as they come to decisions. They're asking, what does it look like to pick up my cross and die today? And studies have shown that you make about 30,000 decisions in a day. I don't know how accurate that is. Uh, there's debate about that research. Um, but if you make 30,000 decisions, you know most of them are decisions like this. I decided to go fill up my cup of coffee before I started teaching. Pretty insignificant decision, to be honest. Probably didn't need to run that through the filter. What does it look like to pick up my cross and die today? Maybe not, not having another cup of coffee would be the answer. Um, but I will say this, in even just parenting this morning... Right? There have been several moments where I've had to ask the question, what does it look like to be like Jesus to my nine-year-old daughter who doesn't like to have her hair brushed in the morning? Or what does it look like to be um, Jesus to my high school daughter who at times goes through uh, fringe drama? Not a surprise with 16-year-old high school girls. And, and so that question has been shaping me. That, that would be part of our hope um, for you as well in this class is that our study not only teaches you how to know Jesus, but also how to know Jesus and live uh, more like him in life. As we come to Luke today, Jesus is starting his public ministry, and someone is going to have what we're going to call an inaugural address. And we're familiar with these. Uh, political stump speeches, although we probably wouldn't demone Jesus and say that's what he's doing here. But, but it is similar um, in the sense that notice what happens in chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 12, Jesus prays all night. Now, Luke points this out more than all of the other gospel writers, that significant events in Jesus' life, as well as in the second part, the book of Acts, in the life of the church, happened because of prayer. And if I could underline that for you in Jesus' life and say, what does it look like to live like Jesus and to live like the early church? It's to be people who pray. And ask God to be with us as we make decisions. One of those big decisions that Jesus makes is the choosing of the 12 apostles in this moment. And I think you're all aware of some of the significance of him even choosing Judas Judas among them. But some of the ragtag people he chose. I love the character of Peter. Because I see myself in the character of Peter. Because I see Peter as just an ordinary flawed person who says sometimes stupid things that he regrets. I love that about him. I, I love the character of John. I love the fact that he likes to uh, think critically and, and relationally. He seems to be the best friend of Jesus. Um, Jesus calls him the beloved disciple. Um, but, I, but I love watching those individuals interact. But notice every one of the disciples is going to come to Jesus and have a different interaction and need something different from Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to see that. But there is, as we left off last time, there is something significant about this number 12. Uh, and Jesus is making a statement um, when he chooses 12, these 12 men. And we remembered last week that this is part of an echo of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 sons of Jacob, which are the same thing. The 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is just Jacob's nickname. And he got that nickname, that moment when Jacob was wrestling with God. Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And that's what these 12 sons and their people did the rest of their time as they wrestled with God. That's not a bad way to describe some relationship with God, is it? Sometimes we're wrestling with God and God always wins. 
Um, but, but Jesus here by 12 is saying, just like his baptism that happened at the Jordan River, just like the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, I'm coming to show you how to live as the people of God in ways that you all have failed over and over again. So the choosing of the 12 is intentionally that. Then we go from the choosing of the 12. Notice we're going to have this sermon in Luke that looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But this one is on a, depending on your translation, it's on a level place. That's really the Greek word there. It could be a plane, right? So a level place or a plane. And the question we have about this sermon on the critical side, the historical side, is, is this the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount? Or is it a different sermon? And the answer I would give you would be this. I'm okay with either option. Now let me explain. Sermon on the Mount, group crowd is there. Jesus is up on a mountain. Could it also be on a level place on a mountain? Yeah, it can be. Okay, it doesn't have to be literally on a plane. The Greek word allows for it to be a, a level place. In fact, even here, we have Jesus coming down from a mountain and coming to a level place. So there's a mountain involved here as well. There's lots of mountains in Israel. So it's possible that it's the same sermon. Now, the Sermon on the Mount and the Luke sermon are not a voice rec- They're recording me right now. It's not a voice recording where someone then dictated the entire sermon. We know this, that these sermons are a summary of what Jesus said. Now, Jesus would have spoken in a way to where they would be very memorable, but someone would have written down in the Chosen series, right? Matthew is there scripting the entire sermon. Someone written these things down as a historical record, and there would have been oral traditions. So these things are, are, in some sense, the sermons that are spoken, but it's the voice of Jesus, scholars would say, the voice of Jesus Um, in addition to not just the immediate words or the entire manuscript of Jesus. So it's possible that Luke and Matthew are getting at the same sermon and they are using summary statements of here's what Jesus said. But here's here's my personal opinion. I actually think it's likely they're two different sermons and that Jesus said, hear me on this, Jesus said the same kinds of things multiple times to different audiences. This makes sense. Michael DeFazio is going to preach the sermon he preaches this morning four times. Now, if you're hanging out with Mark Christian and Michael DeFazio and Elijah Daly and Drake Holderman, he will have verbalized that sermon more than just four times because they go backstage and before he ever preaches about that. Now, do you think Jesus, by the time he was hanging out with the disciples, probably talked about some of the same things multiple times? Well, he did because we know this. Jesus would get done saying something. Disciples say, what did you mean by that? And then Jesus would go back over it again. Do you think you'd memorize that by the time you got done a couple times having those conversations? Well, this is part of why I think we have a historical accuracy in the words of Jesus, because the disciples were there to eyewitness these things multiple times. Um, One of the things that I used to preach at a church, same church, small town, 6,000 people, small church, 400 people. And I used to preach two, three times a weekend. But I'd preach the same sermon and not repeat, not repeat myself or not repeat a story. But now that I teach and preach at Ozark Christian College, I preach at churches all over the country. And guess what I get to do? I get to preach the same sermon and use the same illustration. I have an illustration of a guy who got lost in the cave for 34 days. And I've told that story a hundred times, not even going to lie. Sometimes I lose track on, have I told you this story before? Because that story that I tell reminds me of what it looks like to be lost in sin and be unable to rescue yourself. And then you settle for like eating whatever the world has to offer in the darkness and it's just not going to sustain you. And and I tell this story of this guy who's lost in the cave in France and how he needed someone to come into the cave and rescue him so he could have real bread and water dying there. And he could not find his way out. I mean, obviously, I could tell that story in 10 minutes. I just gave you the 30 minutes, 30 second synopsis of it. But I've told that story so many times that when someone comes up and says, hey, remember that story you tell? I know the story. Um, And so similarly, I think Jesus, as an itinerant preacher, he's going from village to village. These things are not on a podcast. 
No one's getting online to listen to the sermons of Jesus. He is giving these sermons over and over again. And so I'm okay with us recognizing that this is possibly a second time that Luke is recording here that Jesus said some similar things to the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So the Sermon on the Plain. I still think the function is the same. And so in your handout, you'll notice what I said. Jesus is going to start by saying, my kingdom is going to be an upside-down kingdom. It's going to be a reversal. So notice how the sermon starts with the Beatitudes, these blessing statements, very Jewish, by the way, to say these are the people that are going to be blessed. Uh, Max Lucado had a book called The Applause of God or The Applause of Heaven back in the day. And that gets at this word that it's not just happy. It's the idea that like God is actually applauding you and these are the people that God esteems or honors. And, but notice that they're not typically the honorable people. Like if we were to answer the question, and, and you know this, if I were to do this in a crowd, like these are the people who are blessed. We would say, blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the healthy. Like in America, right? Like we have the ideals of what we would say are blessed. And yet what we find here is Jesus flips everything upside down and says, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who are weeping. Blessed are those who are excluded and hated. And you're like, whoa. That doesn't seem like they're very blessed. Can can I tell you why I think they're blessed? Because these are the people who know that they need a new king and a new kingdom. This is true in the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel as well, but, but let's just land here. When you are poor in the first century world, you needed someone else to give you daily bread. So blessed are you if you realize that you can't, you can't give yourself everything you need. If you need to ask for daily bread, blessed are you. Now Matthew says poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. So blessed are you if you're hungry in your spirit and you know that you don't have what it takes to feed, to feed you. And you need someone, because guess why? You're going to turn to Jesus. Uh, Blessed are you, he says, if you are hungry. Same thing. Blessed are those of you who weep. Because if you find yourself in a state of brokenness, then you need hope beyond this world. You need something to hold on to. And so you're going to turn to Jesus. You see, both the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel and these, I don't really feel like they're like statements you have to measure up to. I think actually they're like statements that you recognize in humility. I'm actually measuring myself down. My, my family and I for Christmas this year got Silver Dollar City season passes. We do this about every three years. My mom helps us buy them. And one of the things was every year we go to Silver Dollar City, my kids grow a bit, right? And so they have those little sticks that they have next to the ride that say, okay, how tall are you when you get on this ride? Sometimes I feel like when we come to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, we wonder if we measure up. We try to attain to these things. But Jesus is actually saying, if you humble yourself and realize you're bankrupt, you're morally, I'm a sinner, that you're hungry, that you can't find daily bread in this broken, dark world, that that these things are true of you, that there is no real hope here outside of Jesus and the hope that God has for you, then you're the kind of person Jesus is looking for. Now, I love that. Because oftentimes what we think, and and I I hear this all the time, we have to measure up to be accepted by Jesus. I mean, I've had people say this, I can't come to church because I don't have the clothes to wear. That happened in Carterville 20 years ago, 30 years ago. A lady's mom, young mom, her kids came to our Wednesday night programming, and, and she wanted to come to Sunday morning, but didn't feel like she could come because she didn't have clothes that she felt like comfortable enough to wear there. I need to measure up to come to Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, actually, you need to measure down. And you already see yourself there. Blessed are you. I had a what worked for AT for probably 50 years. He retired from AT&T. And he was already serving in our church to the level of being a volunteer leader. We asked him to be an official volunteer leader. In our church, we called it a deacon. Uh, the word is also minister or servant leader. And, and he said, no, because there's some things in my past that, that I know that I've done. And, and I, don't, I don't know that I measure up. And I went, that's exactly why you measure up, because you realize you don't measure up. Because Jesus needs people who are broken and recognize their need for him. And those are actually the people who are the best leaders in the church. So I want us to to hear these beatitudes in this way. And then, then Jesus gives some woes. And this actually reminds me in the Old Testament, it's kind of a weird, weird story. There's two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Okay? Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And the people of God. Um, when they came into the promised land, 
Half of them stood on Mount Ebal. Half of them stood on Mount Gerizim. And they cried out covenantal blessings. Blessed are we if we obey the word of God and follow him. And then the other side cried out these woes or curses. Cursed are we if we don't. Jesus is doing that same kind of thing as he starts a new kingdom. You hear the echoes? Now, in Matthew's gospel, he just gives the Beatitudes. And then he waits to give the woes to the very end in Matthew 23. Woe to you, law. You wear your tassels long. You love to be greeted in the marketplaces. You love the best seats at church. Like, you love to be known by people. Woe to you. So Matthew's gospel does it as well. But he, he talks about it at two different episodes. But here we have in Luke this echo of this moment in Israel's history. Now, let me nerd out on it for a minute. Archaeologists just recently excavated an area of one of these mountains and found a little medallion from this same time period that has a curse statement on it. Apparently, they gave out like a commemorative coin to people at this moment. We think it's from this episode, like this same time frame. Pretty crazy. And so we have archaeological evidence about these kinds of things, and I like to nerd out on that kind of a thing. So let me, let me look at your paper real quick. Kingdom reversal, but it asks the question, who are the kingdom people? And the kingdom people are the people you'd not expect. Because they're the people who are the desperate for Jesus to come in and bring the kingdom for them or bring salvation to them. So the, the sermon continues with this idea of loving your enemies and continues with making sure that you don't judge others. Notice how it's about the heart. Like if you recognize you're broken and you're a sinner, you treat people differently. You see people differently. You see them like God does. And at the end, Jesus says, you know this by your fruit. And so you make a decision, follow me or don't. Build your life on me or not. And we're, we're familiar with the parable of the build your life on the rock or on the sand. And so the question becomes, what of substance are you going to build your life upon? So, so Jesus, both in the Sermon on the Mount and here, ends that way. And then we kind of get into our text for today. And I, I want to connect the dots between these two passages because what we have then is actually Jesus leave from that moment and then start to like live that out. Because in our text today, notice how I've titled your handout, Jesus is the Savior of all. Guess who he's going to interact with? He's going to interact with some of the people who are the blessed people. Blessed are you when you're poor, when you're hungry, when you don't have your act together, but you know you need Jesus. He's also going to interact with people who think they have it all together, the Pharisees. And you're going to see that throughout this next little story or these series of stories, Jesus is going to live out what he just said in the sermon. And his kingdom is now going to be inaugurated, but then actually come into a place of existence where you start to see its implications. Is that helpful? Sometimes if you're like me, when I read the gospel, like I read and I just like chop it up into segments and I don't see how it continues to flow throughout the gospel. So let me, let me pause right there because the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount have a lot of content. We're, we're kind of moving through it like medium. Questions or observations, things that stand out to you right now that you want to highlight before we move on to some of these stories? I'll let you think about that for a second. I'm going to erase the board. Yeah, anything, anything you're thinking? Okay, here's where we're going to go. Jesus goes from this mountain. We don't know the location of it. We do know where he's going next. And remember, I keep drawing this little balloon kind of image. It looks like a harp or it looks like an upside down pear. That's the Sea of Galilee. Then you have this like hot dog with a bite out of it, Dead Sea. Okay. Um, this is region we're going to come back to. Right now, we're going to be on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee in a little village called Capernaum. And uh, you see on your handout, this is actually, it means it's Nahum's village, right? Um, some of you have been in small towns like this, and this is really a small fishing town. Um, this is where we hiked. We hiked from Nazareth uh, down to Capernaum um, and actually then took a boat across the Sea of Galilee um, to Tiberias. And so this is my first time on the Sea of Galilee, is in this little, this little village. Um, and Jesus spends quite a bit of time here. In fact, it's, it's pretty serene, to be honest. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot. 
Um, and it's here that Jesus, notice who he's going to interact with. We're going to come to an outsider right away, a centurion. So this is an occupational force. I was watching a movie last night on World War II. Uh, the movie took place in France. Uh, so can I, can I elevate a little bit of the tension? Like here, here is this soldier that represents an occupational force in Israel. Now, likely he's a conscript. He's probably not, this centurion's probably not from like Rome itself or Italy itself. He's probably a conscript from this region, not in Israel, but probably from Syria or Damascus up north. But he's a conscript who does work uh, for Rome. High-ranking soldier uh, in the Roman military. Uh, but when it comes to his responsibility, the reason he, they are called centurions, they would be responsible for about 80 to 100 soldiers. So we get a lot of our military divisions and, and, uh, and ideas from the way that Rome broke their military up. Um, these then centurion cohorts would be a part of a larger cohort of 480 to 500 soldiers. So you start to multiply this out. And then there would actually be 10 cohorts in total in the Roman military, the first cohort being the largest, but in all of those cohorts having about 5,000 men. And so you kind of just see how these things start to expand. Um, I say that because I want to say this. Centurions in the New Testament oftentimes respond in a very positive way to the gospel. It's just, it's a theme. I don't know what to make of it, but it's a theme that is there. So I've listed for seven of them. The first one starts with this one. And you'll notice that Jesus, when it comes to this centurion, is he's going to use the word, uh, Luke's going to use the word amazed. Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. And it's weird because Jesus is only amazed at one other thing, and that's the lack of faith of the people in Israel. You see the upside-down kingdom? It should be the insiders who have faith, but instead it's this outsider who has faith, and this is the man who amazes Jesus. Now, we also then know that in the book of Acts, Luke writes, Luke and Acts, the first person to come as a Gentile into the church is also a centurion. So Luke sees that, and he's like, wow. Like, Jesus was amazed at this guy's faith, and God chose to let this guy be the first one, Cornelius, he's named, to, to be, lead the way, really, be the line leader of Gentiles coming to the faith. Of course, then you also have the centurion at the cross who says, surely this man was, and we don't know what he meant, a God or, or the Son of God. Like, a Son of God or the Son of God. And as a Roman, he might have just been a little bit blurry on that based on his worldview. Like their own emperor as son of a god. And so maybe it's not as much of a confession, but at least a recognition that Jesus wasn't guilty. And that something miraculous and supernatural was happening at the cross. At the least, he recognizes that. At the most, it's a confession of faith. And there's some ironic dynamics there when it comes to the sign that's hanging above the cross. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews. And, and it's a Roman outsider, centurion, who makes a confession that is, is closer than what those who should have accepted him but rejected him made. So centurions um, throughout the gospel and throughout the book of Acts become somewhat interesting. Probably one of the things that I want you to, to see in his story is in chapter 7, verse 6, at the very end, he says this phrase, I am not worthy. Do you hear the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Like, blessed are those who are weeping. He sees sickness and he knows, I need Jesus. Like, the reason why this story comes out of, I believe, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, and, and the reason why this story is where it is, because he exemplifies someone who, of faith who knows that they need Jesus for what they need. And so he obviously has this faith in Jesus that Jesus has the authority to heal his servant even without coming into his house. And so this is, why, this is what causes Jesus to say, wow. Because he turns to him in the midst of his, midst of his need. We then, we then turn to an episode. So we're going to walk through some episodes pretty quick. Um, and I've given you a lot of notes, by the way, because we can't necessarily get into every detail, but I've just tried to give you some extra notes from some of the, the courses or classes that I teach, uh, teach in your handout. Um, we get into the next story, and it's the story of a widow. You, you see, you hear, do you hear the blessed statements like starting to pour out? Here's those who are weeping now. Like, she's a widow, and it's a little town called Nain. It's a little village south of Jesus' hometown, by the way. Little tiny village. 
He gets to the gate, and there's a man, so it's not a child, who has died. He's being carried out. Now notice the detail, verse 12. He's the only son of his mother, and she's a widow. Okay, so what do we now know about this, this little lady? I don't know if she's little. She could have been a big lady. I don't know. But what do we, what do we know about her? Well, she's a widow. Okay, she has no husband. She has a son, only son, and he's now dead too. What's that? She has no means of income. Yeah, in the first century world, she has no means of income. Social security in the first century world was your family. Now, we might debate whether social security is all that secure. We, we talk about security all the time, right? We talk, we talk about national security, social security, financial security. And ironically, none of those things make us feel quite secure. Like, that's Jesus' point. Like, unless you realize that I'm your source of security, you're never going to feel secure. But here's this woman who's there. Her entire security has been stripped away. Doesn't have a husband. Doesn't have a son. She's a widow. Now, the line of responsibility would be her synagogue. And eventually it would be, or the church. That's why you get big, long passages. First Timothy is a good example, chapter 5 where Paul says the church has to take care of the widows if they don't have an immediate family to take care of them because you are their family. You are their extended family as the church of God. Um, It's one of the reasons why when I teach Ozark students, 20-year-old students, I teach them about the importance of generational ministry, that the church is a family church. we got to take care of each other. We have that responsibility according to Scripture. So Jesus is here with her in this moment, and notice he has compassion on her, and notice at the end of verse 13, he says, do not weep. Blessed are those who weep, who mourn. And in this miracle, you have a picture, like all miracles, a picture of the promise we have in the kingdom. Did Jesus heal every single person? The answer we said last week is no, he didn't. But this woman is a picture. This compassion of Jesus is a picture of the kind of people the kingdom is for and the kind of ultimate promise the kingdom has. Now, sometimes I have to hold on to that in hope. Can I be honest? Because I've had moments where I wanted Jesus to heal in the immediate, and the answer seems to be no. Or at least the answer is not yet. And I have to, as a person who weeps or mourns, say, blessed are those who weep. Because when I weep even for a lost loved one, and believe me, as a father, there's plenty of times I pray for my kids and that that is possible as well. And I can't imagine that kind of weeping. But even then, there is a longing that says, nevertheless, I believe that God's word is true and the resurrection is true. You see, you don't grab that unless you're actually weeping or recognize the weeping of this world that you need a Savior to rescue us from death. I was walking with my son one time in our neighborhood. There's a dead cat. I don't know what had happened to the cat. I didn't do it, I promise. Um, but the cat was dead, and he was like four or five years old, still cute. Uh, I mean, he's cute now. He's 13, but uh, he wouldn't do this now. But he's walking around, and, and he like kicks the cat a little bit, like nudges it with his foot. Not like soccer kicks it, but like nudges it with his foot. And it's the rigor mortis had already set in. Kind of gross, sorry. Um, and he's like, you can see his little five-year-old eyes. He's like four or five. Dad, that's dead. He's just processing death. And then he looks at me and says, Dad, someday you're going to die too, huh? And I'm like, yeah, but hopefully not today. Um, <laughs> um, but, but I could tell, like, we had this moment where we had to process that. And, and it was, as a father, I still remember that story because it really struck me of, like, because I was able to talk to him about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, that's one of the things that really ma- it matters. And it only matters when we come to recognize the true nature of our weeping, our mourning, and this broke, not just for death, but the brokenness of this world do you ever like read the headline news or just the headlines of your own life and just lament? Want to weep? When I was there this week, it's like this world is so broken. And Jesus says, actually, blessed are you when you see that and know that and feel that because you know you need me to come in and fix these things. And so in this moment, Jesus then touches the, the beer, the platform. They, they would have buried their dead immediately, unlike what we do culturally today. In fact, did you know it was Abraham Lincoln in his funeral when he was embalmed that actually shifted burial practices in the United States? That's kind of a weird thing. Um, but it was actually Abraham Lincoln, like his public burial and, and his embalming and kind of taking him around. And, like that actually shifted burial practices for everyone else. 
Interesting how that plays out. Most cultures in the world, you would actually try to bury someone as soon as possible. Um, some of my friends from Afghanistan, some, some of their cultural and religious practices would have been similar to this dynamic here. Um, so they're, they're carrying him out. And, and Jesus, here's what's weird, though. In, in Judaism, if you touch something that is touching something dead, what happens to you? You become unclean, ceremonial unclean. What happens to you if you interact with a Gentile? You become ceremonial unclean. What happens to you if you touch someone who is like, well, I don't know, let's say bleeding? We're going to see that story at the end. You become ceremonial. Every one of these stories, the opposite happens. Blessed are you. Jesus' holiness is what is actually ceremonially contagious. When Jesus touches you, he doesn't become unclean, you become clean. And so this is true even for this man here. Because of God's nature, Jesus, when he touches him, this, I would love to, I'd love to have this recorded. I'm not going to lie. Could you imagine this at a funeral ceremony, right? Guy's laying on the table. Everyone knows he's dead. All of a sudden, he gives up. He's like, hey, mom, can I get something to eat? I mean, there, there's just this reality. And so notice what happens. Mixed emotions. This is part of why I think it's a, an accurate historical uh, record. Like, the emotions are not, like, plastic it's like they were afraid and they glorified. Then, wouldn't that be your response too? Like if that little cat, my son kicks it and all of a sudden I t- t- reach down and touch it and the cat gets up, you're like, whoa, who are you, right? At some level, something just happened, right? Um, so there, there is a dynamic here to where they're recognizing that he's the teacher. He's not the first, what they say, a great prophet, kind of like Elijah or Elisha. They're recognizing something about him. But remember what we said in this story? When we walk with Jesus... We're going to ask questions about Jesus, but it's not going to be till the very end. There's our light bulb again. Sorry for my pictures. I'm going fast. It's not going to be to the very end till they go, oh, here's who you are. Now, Peter later on is going to say, you're the Messiah. But they're just getting glimpses right now. At least he's a great prophet. And it's going to take us till the resurrection to go, oh, you're the son of God. And have that picture come into complete focus. I can use this illustration with you all, but not with my students, but it's like one of those old Polaroid camera, right, pictures that you get out and you kind of shake, and eventually the picture comes into focus. Now, those have come back in as like a hobby or in, you know, teenagers sometimes will buy an old Polaroid camera, but it's not the same as just like what it used to be. And, And so here's this dynamic where in Luke, this is kind of what's happening, is this is coming into focus. So in this moment then, you notice in verse 18, John the Baptist then is asking questions about Jesus because Jesus is still coming into focus. That's why I want to use that story. Because they're asking, Jesus, like, your kingdom is not exactly what I, we thought it was going to be. Like, like, John's not God's son and not divine. He doesn't know everything. He's not. And so John's like, like, a kingdom that would overtake Rome. And I thought, like, it'd be a little bit more subversive. And are you the guy? And then Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says, no, look, the lame are healed, life is brought. And he's quoting Isaiah, he's quoting other Old Testament passages that talk about the restoration of Israel. And Jesus going, he's shaking the picture, he's going, no, 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 this is coming into focus. So, so I want you to see kind of where that fits in. But then there's this little weird story at the end to where Jesus says, you know, when John came, you wanted him to dance to your music. And you said, you know, here's this guy and he's, He's out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, and he doesn't do anything fun. He's kind of curmudgeon, right? He's always saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. When I come, I'm hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and I'm, I'm going to parties, and I'm, I'm making wine happen at weddings, and you're like, he's a drunkard, he's a sinner. And he said, here's the problem. And he uses, he uses two illustrations. Notice, we played the flute for you, you did not dance. That would be a flute song would be like a, a ditty, right? Like picture like Irish music, right? I'm not going to dance in front of you. Forgive me. Um, but then the second little phrase is, but we sang a dirge and you did not weep. So we sang funeral music and you didn't cry. In other words, we played music we wanted you to dance to and you didn't dance the way we wanted you to dance. Now, can I, can I say this? Sometimes we want Jesus to dance to our music. We want Jesus to, we want him to be. And Jesus doesn't do that. And he's pointing this out. Okay, so even John's disciples, as they come up, and John is coming up saying, are you the Messiah? And, and the picture's coming into focus. Jesus isn't acting the way that they thought he would act as the Messiah. And he's going, well, don't make me dance to your music. In other words, you should dance to my music. Now, culturally, we do some of the same things to Jesus. We want Jesus to be pro some of the things we're pro. 
and against some of the things we're against. And Jesus is like, I don't dance to your same music. Instead, I want you to come to my kingdom and be a part of my kingdom. Okay? I think, you know, if I'm going to summarize what's going on in uh, chapter 7, verses 18 down through 35, um, that's how I'd summarize it. And then he says, wisdom, in other words, those who live by wisdom, is going to be proven by the fruit of her children. So follow me, build your house on my teaching, and this is going to become one of those things where you recognize, oh, this is the wise way. In other words, it's God's way of seeing things. So it's weird that that little episode fits in the midst of these stories. Because notice what we have is now we have another story of a person who is weeping, an outsider, and a sinner. Man, this isn't who we expected him to be. This kingdom's not who we expected it to be. The people it's for are not who we expected it to be for. John the Baptist is even not questioned. Jesus says, don't make me dance to your music. Then we have a Pharisee and a woman. So now we actually have two characters, right? One you would expect to be an insider, a Pharisee. One you'd expect to be an outsider. Can I take it one level further? We have a man and we have a woman. This is not the only time in Luke's gospel where you're going to have a man and you're going to have a woman sitting right next to each other. And he's going to use the stories, not always to contrast, but oftentimes he tells stories. Remember the birth narrative, Christmas? You had Simeon in the temple and you had Anna, the prophetess. Just a minute ago, we had a centurion and a widow. You watch Luke do this. It's just part of his style. He picks out two characters. Maybe it's because of, I don't know, look at the room. Disciples are made of men and women. And so we come to these stories, and Jesus interacts with both men and women, and both men and women come to Jesus. And so we have that dynamic in this story as well. But we have a dinner party. And, and I, I want to talk for a, a minute, a few minutes actually, about this dinner party. So we've been trying to get to this particular story. Because this story, more than the, actually the paradigm, it's the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed and woes. And the person who gets the blessing in this story is not the person you expect to get the blessing in this story. And the person who gets the woe in this story is not the person you expect to get the woe in this story. So we have a, a, a meal. Now, Luke loves food. I, I don't know about food, but table fellowship. He loves meals. He, he loves the fact that we're all like sitting around in, in, in tables in this moment. Because there's something weird that happens where you kind of get to know each other a little bit. And I know, like, we're kind of quiet when we come in here, but we'll go into the crowd of the, the auditorium, and I know this is true, because this happens to me now. You'll recognize some people. Because something about setting a table, if we were to have food in here, and some of you shared meals at each other's houses and with, like, maybe a small group or with a group of friends. Uh, I was at a, a party last night for someone who graduated with their, their degree, a single mom who graduated. We were at, at her parents' house. We threw a party for her. All those relationships are significantly different. They live in our neighborhood because I've been in that house and I've eaten food in their living room. There's an intimacy that happens there when that happens. We have, we have people coming to our house tonight from church here. And those people have a little bit of a different perspective of the Dalrymple family because they come to our house and we're going to feed them tonight. There's a cheese ball and some homemade cookies. and So there, there's something that happens at tables. Luke knows this. And over and over again, as a Gentile author... He says, Jesus ate with people, and when he ate with people, he turned the tables upside down. And the people who were the insiders became the outsiders, and the people who were the outsiders. And you know this is what happens when you come to Jesus. So dinner parties in the first century world were interesting as well. There were some, like, customs that would happen. You know, when people come into my house tonight, they'll ask if they need to take off their shoes. We have kids, so they don't, because our house is already going to have mud tracked through it and leaves. But sometimes we take off our shoes in different houses. Uh, we'll take coats. We'll put the coats uh, either in our coat closet, which is full of board games. So in, they'll end up probably going on our master bedroom bed, which is right there. And, and there's just certain customs. Can I get you something to drink tonight? I'll serve coffee. I'll have a decaf coffee for Michael DeFazio because he can't drink caffeine after 5 o'clock, apparently. And, uh, and we'll have some water for the people or tea for people who don't like coffee. And, and there's just certain customs to that. This would be true there. One of the things in the Jewish world that would be true is you would welcome them with a kiss, Think European slash uh, even Latin American cultures. This is normal for them. So a kiss on both cheeks. First time I went to Venezuela, I went to a wedding. Every young lady, I was only 20 years old, every young lady, I wasn't married, every young lady in this entire wedding kissed me multiple times. And I was like, this isn't bad, right? And so there's this dynamic in this culture that that is a normal way to greet. Um, a person's feet would be washed. You know this. They've been walking on dusty roads, dusty, uh, my best, this is actually spending a week hiking in Colorado. 
um, the dust and dirt that gets, even in tennis shoes, I'll take off my shoes and they will be caked with the mud, dust, sweat, stuff that's gross in there. It is what it is. And so you would be reclining at the table. Your feet would actually be out behind you. And so you would want those feet to be washed off. Plus, in a lot of environments, you'd be walking on um, rugs or different furniture that would be there or have your feet up on those. So it makes sense for this to be happening. Um, Sometimes you'd be given oil for your head and your skin. Think kind of lotion in the dry arid that the uh, air that this would be something you would do. And then you'd actually be sat down. You would be seated. Now, sometimes you would actually try to find your seat based upon where you thought you would be sat in honor. Other times it would be very formal. It, and so kind of picture up here, like it, because this is the, let's say, head of the table, the seats of honor would be right next to her. Sorry to point you out. Um, and then obviously the seats of least honor would be the ones that were on the far end of the table. So even in the Passover meal with Jesus, Peter is at the end of the table, which I kind, kind of find interesting. But Judas and John are at the two prime spots at the table. Animals have been arguing over who's the time in. And they're arguing over these seats. Jesus has already said, or Jesus will by that point have said to the Pharisees, woe to you, you want the best seats. This is that kind of banquet. Here's the other thing that's weird about banquets is that these were actually public entertainment. It's kind of weird for us. Like, could you imagine hosting a dinner party and then other people in your neighborhood come to see who's there? It's called reality TV, right? We do this. Um, we, we have like a, a dynamic where we like to watch celebrities in kind of their normal acting environments. So a dinner party, imagine a bunch of celebrities in town or, you know, political elites in town having a conversation. Oftentimes you talk about philosophy, religion, or politics, but you wanted to come and hear what these leaders were saying, you could actually in their courtyard and even inside the room at times, if it's a large enough venue, come and stand on the outside of the room and listen in. And as awkward as that makes us feel because we care about privacy, to them that actually brought honor and glory. Because the more elite people you had at your table, the more people would come and want to hear it and the more honor because you had attracted a crowd to your home to hear about what you had going on you would actually have more glory and honor to you as the host because these people had all gathered together. Does that make sense, what's going on here? So I want us to recognize this dynamic when we get to this story, but then there's going to be others where Jesus is going to flip the script again. We're going to keep coming to that. So I don't have to go through that entire process again. Um, But but here we have in this particular story then um, a woman who is there. And, And this is part of like, so how did she get there? Well, this is how she got there. This would have been a public setting Okay, and this woman is there, a woman, it doesn't, you don't need to know Greek to understand what's going on here. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, you, you get a picture of at least the reputation of this woman. When she, um, she did this, when she learned that reclining at the table uh, was Jesus, she came up behind him with a, an alabaster of ointment. This would have been a very costly, uh, it would have been uh, hewn out stone. Oftentimes, they would have been plugged back up, and oftentimes, they would have been used for different things. Um, Burial would be true. I think Jesus is going to have this happen multiple times. There's some debate whether this is the same later. I think it's a different story. But but also, like, you don't take showers every day in the first century world. So these kinds of ointments and scents really do matter in the first century world. And based upon what seems to be, at least her reputation, this possibly makes sense as well. But she has this flask of ointment. She stands behind him, and then she starts cry, like crying. Blessed are those who weep. You see what's going on here? Every one of these stories has tied into those blessed are statements, hasn't it? Blessed are those who weep. And she's there crying, and her tears are falling down on his feet that are unwashed, by the way. And then she's down there, and she's wiping her feet. I mean, you can imagine even like the panic. And she's just trying to wipe this off of his feet, but then anoints his feet. And the Pharisee who invited him says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known. Now notice up above, they said, this man's a great prophet. And the Pharisee, I love how Luke phrases this. Um, the Pharisee said to himself, if this man is a prophet. In other words, he didn't say this out loud. But Jesus then answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I love this about Jesus. Um, And so Simon says, say it, teacher. And then he tells a parable. 
And, and perhaps you know the parable. Parable is just a simple parable about two people who owe debt. And, and one of them is a great debt and one of them is a minimal debt. And the question is, which one do you think loves more, the one who is forgiven most or least? And the Pharisee knows the answer, the one who's forgiven most. It's a pretty obvious answer. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. But I think there's some irony there, maybe a little bit of a sting there. Oh, you got the parable right, but you didn't get the situation right, Simon. You see what's going on? He just reversed everything. You, you got my par- You judged rightly, but you didn't judge rightly her. Like, this is what I love about Jesus, is that in his justice and his love and his compassion, he doesn't judge the same way Simon judges. He sees her coming to him and her desire to fall at his feet. And the best place for us to be when it comes to the kingdom of God is weeping at the feet of Jesus or bowing at the feet of Jesus in humility. This is how we get blessing versus woe. And so he says, do you see this woman? Of course this guy sees this woman, right? Like everyone in the room is watching a woman in this particular moment. It's this awkward moment that is happening here. You can kind of picture this irony that is there. And yet Jesus then elevates her. He says, she has done everything done to welcome your home. She's been the host and the hospitable one that has welcomed me in. In this story, it asks the question, what kind of heart do you have to have to welcome Jesus into your home? And the answer is really a heart of humility and weeping, isn't it? Like for you to invite Jesus in, you have to recognize how broken you are. The Pharisee invited Jesus in to get honor for himself. She invited Jesus in to honor Jesus. And the Pharisee and this woman are set in this story to be a deliberate, a deliberate illustration of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And a deliberate illustration of what it looks like to come to Jesus and have our sins. Notice what Jesus says to have our sins forgiven. And then he says to this woman, go, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in shalom. And so this this story, again, highlights this dynamic for us. It's a powerful story if we put ourselves in the story and ask, who am I as I invite Jesus to the table? The beginning part of chapter 8, I'll summarize briefly. We just recognize there's there's actually a number of women then who follow Jesus. And many of them are unexpected. Like some of them have had demons some of the Herod's household, and these people are providing for Jesus financially as well as being disciples of Jesus. Can I, can I just share with you some of the most generous people in the church and in the kingdom are, are some of the ladies like these ladies right here who are firm believers in Jesus. They're not going to, just like the woman who's anointing Jesus with his alabaster ointment, these women are anointing Jesus by giving to him financially and entrusting that to him. And, and following him as disciples. And so we watch this dynamic. And so there's a little bit of a, a tag on in chapter 8 of these same things being true. Obviously, here we have introduced Mary Magdalene, um, who will come up again later. We'll pick her up. But, but she's actually, I think, from a little village called Magdala, which is a little bit further down the coastline right there that we've actually just recently discovered and started doing some archaeological digs in. Um, there's a, a, a Catholic... Um, entity that is there setting up uh, kind of an archaeological dig. And so we have some interesting things that we don't have time to talk about. But you could, you could dig into that if you are interested. They did find a stone that was likely where they opened up the scrolls at the synagogue there in Magdala. And that stone has a depiction of the menorah and the jewel. And it's likely um, that this stone was carved and is the only one we have that's a, a visual picture of the temple before its destruction in 70 A.D., like we just don't have a lot of evidence of what the temple looked like. Interesting to see that in Magdala. Um, so we'll see Mary Magdalene come again. Um, then what we have, and, and we're not going to get into all of these details, is then Jesus is actually going to um, tell some parables that we're familiar with. These, these parables come out and ask the question, um, what kind of seed, or excuse me, what kind of soil are you going to be then? So... If Jesus is looking for those who weep and he's looking for those who mourn and those who are humble and those who are desperate, how do you prepare and cultivate your heart for that? And in the parable of the soil, which we find this in the other, the other uh, gospels as well, ask the question about your heart. So what's going to get in the way of your heart? Well, sometimes it's greed and sometimes it's worry and Sometimes it's idolatry and these things get in the way. But ultimately, Jesus is going to say in these parables, 
Will you have a hard heart or will you have a soft heart? Will you listen or will you not? And, and this is the same, notice nine, the, the, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, the purpose of parables. The same thing that happened in Isaiah where Isaiah was told to go out and preach. And God said to Isaiah, yeah, but people's hearts are going to be hard and they're not going to listen. And so Jesus is really just echoing that same thing. I'm, I'm going to come, I'm going to plant seeds, and some of you are going to have really, really hard soil. And, and the seed's not going to take root. Um, we'll come back to some parables. Um, I want to get to one final story and come back to, we're going to come back to the, the Jesus calming the storm. I want to come back to, to one, excuse me, two final stories. Because I want to tie, what I want to do is tie in chapter 7 and 8, stories of individual, like the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? Why well, I'm kind of speeding through some things, and then we can come back and talk about them. I just want to wrap up this particular theme. Because chapter 7 and 8, coming out of the Sermon on the Plain, is all about people, 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 and how they respond to Jesus. Even when John the Baptist is like, I don't know that I see it. Jesus is like, no, don't dance this music. Parables are like, hey, don't harden your heart. Like, it's still about the people. So that's why I'm summarizing that to come to this. Jesus then crosses the Sea of Galilee to um, a region that would have been a Gentile region on the Sea of Galilee. And here he's going to encounter a man who is possessed by a demon who is living amongst tombs. Do you hear the theme of uncleanliness? We have demons, Gentile land, and tombs, dead people. Like, there's really not a better way to be like, this dude's really unclean. And so Jesus, and I'm summarizing a big, long story, right? Jesus comes across, but the summary of it, and you have pigs in the story too, for Jewish people, unclean. If I'm going to summarize the story, it's this. Whatever Jesus touches becomes clean, even if it's Gentile. Even if it looks beyond hope. Even if it looks dead. Those things that are bound free. Can I say that again? Even if it looks impossible, are there times where you look at someone in their story, family members, friends, neighbors, kids, and where you say, I don't know that it's possible for them to change. I don't know that Jesus can ever set them free from this thing. And this is a story that says, Yes. Now, notice it's in the context of the parable of the soils that part of it is the parable of the hard soils and soft soils. Part of it is their decision as well. Part of it is them. But this story is intentionally back-to-back with that. To say, on Jesus' behalf, the answer is yes. Now, I'm going to confess, like I have some of these stories in my life where I've said about certain people, and I have someone who I'm still praying this about. I check in on him about once a year. Where I'm thinking, I don't know that they'll ever change. I don't know that they will ever soften their own soil. But I'm going to do the best I can to plant seeds and cultivate that soil with love and do what I can. But it's this kind of a story. I mean, this is a person who is, like, bound with addiction, who's always around uncleanliness and things that are dark. And and I care enough about them to just try to stay engaged as much as I can. And yet I know that it is ultimately their decision that they have to decide too. And so you have the parable of the soils, and they're back, and Jesus has the ability to set people free. I've seen him do it. But I also know it's a both and. So I want you to hear that story. The final story then we come to is really kind of this final culmination, almost exclamation point of uncleanliness, because next Jesus is going to send out the 12 and say, hey, you go do this. You see what happened? He has the inaugural address of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the kind of kingdom I'm coming. He sets up the 12 apostles. Listen, follow me. They follow him now with all these encounters. And now, next week, he's going to say, now you go do this. And they're going to be like, what? You do too. Okay. And, and so this story ends that. And it's the story of Jesus. And we have Jairus, this, notice a man. And we have an unnamed woman who is going to have been bleeding for 12 years. And Luke, again, and he's not the only gospel who tells this story, but Luke, again, has these, this pairing of a man and a woman who come to Jesus. Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter who is sick, and we have this woman who is bleeding or hemorrhaging for 12 years. And I think, I think there's a dynamic to where the, the disciples see that God preordained this particular series of stories to happen in this moment to show some things about Jesus. There's a couple things. First of all, we have a dynamic where Jesus is on his way, and he's interrupted. Uh, We were talking before class today that Jesus is okay with your interruption. 
You ever feel like this, praying to God? God, there's so many people in the world. Do you even care about my little thing? Right? Peter, Peter says, there's people pressing in on you, Jesus. And you stopped? Why did you stop? Right? Because here's this, here's this child of God. Praying for 12 years. Now tells us he's a physician. That she's been spending a lot of money on physicians. Ironically, like Luke, who's a physician. Colossians 4 tells us he's a physician. And they could not heal her. Do you ever get frustrated in this world when healing doesn't happen? Now, does Jesus heal everyone? No. Is this a picture of ultimate healing? Yes. Okay? I don't know if the number 12 is all that significant. Notice, wait, I erased it already. We had 12 disciples. I, I, I don't know if that, that's significant. Sometimes we can make too much of all of that. But I think, they do, I think the, the gospel authors did notice like the irony of a 12-year-old girl and this woman who for the entire life of that 12-year-old girl had been dying on the inside, dying socially. She, she could not enter into public worship. She could not enter into a relationship. She could not enter into homes. She could not fellowship with people. Could you imagine how alone she was? She, she's the example of blessed are those who are weak and desperate to come find Jesus. Are you desperate enough like this woman to just reach out to Jesus in the midst of all the chaos and, and just recognize Jesus is going to see you and know you and offer healing to you? Um, so this, this is a powerful story. Jesus is willing to be interrupted. And then, of course, we get to the story of the 12-year-old girl, and she's already dead. And Jesus, like this, the boy, notice we have a young man and a young girl. See the boy, girl, male, female, man, uh, woman, dynamic in Luke's gospel. So now we have this young girl who is going to be risen. And Jesus is going to speak down to her words. They're going to sound like something the disciples are going to say later in Acts when, when Tabitha is healed. They're going to kind of mimic, in a way, this miracle. And, and the book of Acts is going to recognize the disciples look like Jesus. They do some of the same things Jesus did. Um, and so we come to this story where we have two pictures of uncleanliness, where once again, like the demon-possessed uh, man, Jesus is the one who brings clean, cleanliness and holiness to other people, even though they themselves were clean. And he restores them to family, to the relationship, and to the community. So I say all of that to say this. What kind of kingdom did Jesus come to bring? Can I summarize some of it this morning for us? Jesus came to bring a kingdom that is for the people who least feel like they deserve it. The people who are the most desperate for it see their own brokenness and need for it. These are the people Jesus came to bless. These are the people that Jesus is looking for. Are we like the Pharisee where we've been forgiven? Then the, the kingdom is probably not for you. The kingdom is actually for the person who recognizes they need to be forgiven of much. And the reality is we all do. Just do you see it? This is who the kingdom is for. It's for the people who are broken and hurting and alone and outsiders and feel like they're unclean. It's for the people who have been discounted. It's for the people who are desperate, the people who have been crying and mourning, where they, like what the Psalms say, I pour out my tears and you collect them in a bottle. I can't go to sleep because my joints are all out of joint. It's these kinds of people that Jesus comes for. And all of these stories in chapter 7 and 8 come and say, and yet the kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring is going to be an eternal kingdom or at the very end of the day, he's going to set everything right. The dead are going to be risen. The broken are going to be healed. The outsiders are going to be insiders. The lonely are going to come to the table. Those who are sinners are going to be set free. They're going to be told to depart in peace. And shalom will win the day. Uh, I read the headlines, and I'll kind of close with this. I read the headlines of our world, and I long for that. I long for that. But I also like read the headlines in my own life, life of my family, relationships, life interactions that I have. We don't always get along. I read the headlines even that I script in my own mind of who I am and my value and my worth. I read some of those same lies and some of those same headlines. And I long for Jesus to come and set those things right and help me to build on a foundation that will actually last. But this is what you read in the sermon as well as in the stories. He's asking you to follow him and build your life on something to last. He said, you don't have to deserve it. You just have to respond to it and come and follow. This leads us where we're going, which next week you'll, you'll go ahead and turn the chapter to chapter 9, which is where he actually then says, okay, so what do you believe about me? He's drawing in the sand for the disciples. So, so this week I want that question to kind of hang in the air. So what do you really believe about Jesus? And oftentimes you can tell what you really believe about Jesus based upon your response of Jesus, the way you pray, 
and the way you respond to those headlines in your life. Because if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then you actually find that even in those moments of desperation, you end up blessed. That sometimes in those moments of hardship, there's a deep joy and peace that can come out of that. Not always is it there vibrant, but it can grow out of that. And you go, wow, I never expected that in the midst of my difficulty, joy, or sorrow, pain, that I would also find hope and joy and peace and love and some of those things. Let me, let me pray for us. We'll be done for today. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who has come. God, we do look at our world, and we have lots of questions, God. I'll be honest. We have lots of questions. But God, we see in Jesus, the one who comes and wants to put things back in order, comes in compassion and comes in love and, and calls us to follow him. And God gives us of hope and peace. And God, at times we, in some of those moments, even here and now, we experience moments where he is able to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. Moments where we receive daily bread and we receive comfort and life. God, we pray that those moments where we receive those will just be glimpses and a foretaste of what we will ultimately have in eternity with you. So God, help us to hold on to hope, trusting in the one who came to proclaim it and prove it through the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.